My daughter is a Disney fan, so she's a Marvel fan, and so we're watching all these movies, and we had never watched any of the Thor movies. So uh, we, well, I got, I got there, okay? Um, says Ashton, Thor, at the back of the room. Um, but, um, but we had never watched the Thor movies, so I'm like, I, I got to preview this first before I allow my, uh, at that point, 11-year-old, who will be 13 tomorrow, to watch this movie. And I watched the first one. I thought, okay, this is fine. So we watched uh, Thor together, and we love Thor. As a matter of fact, we, uh, we just came back from Disneyland, went to the new Avengers campus, and uh, we didn't see Thor, but we were really disappointed. We saw some of the other characters, but Thor was not out, and my daughter was totally bummed that she didn't get to see Thor. She, she loves Thor, and not for the obvious reason that many females love Chris Hemsworth as Thor. Okay, so... But, you know, in the first Thor movie, Thor is almost like invincible. Now, he gets, you know, sent to Earth and all that kind of stuff in that first movie, but he is virtually invincible. But by the time you get to Endgame, if you've watched those movies, Thor is far from invincible. He is like a broken man or a broken Asgardian. He, He is a... He is, uh, he's got a beer belly. He's wearing pajama pants and a robe. Uh, I mean, you know, he, he is just, he, he is a wreck. He's a train wreck. And I have to be honest with you. I like Thor from Thor, the first Thor movie much better than I like Thor in Endgame. I don't want my heroes broken. I want my heroes to be whole. I want them to be invincible, but they're not. And so tonight I want to talk to you about a biblical hero. Now, the the hero of the Bible is Jesus. But there are some guys in the Old Testament that do some pretty heroic things. And so we're going to talk about one of them tonight. His name is Samson. And I think we can even compare him to Thor in some ways because he did have this supernatural strength. And as a result of that supernatural strength, he got major temptations. Now, The truth is this, we are in a moment as a ministry, and here's what I want you to do. I don't necessarily need you to make comparisons tonight, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to say, what is this saying to me? It's not about somebody else. It's not about anybody else. It's about me. What would God teach me in this moment? What do I need to learn in this moment from this man named Samson? So let's talk by talking a little bit about who he was. Samson was born to a very old couple. And this was the period of time before Israel had kings. And so when Israel would get in a really bad spot, their enemies would come against them. Many times their enemies conquered them. Uh, God would raise up someone who was called a judge or a deliverer for his people. And so God tells this older couple, you're going to have a baby boy, and he's going to be a deliverer for my people. He's going to be a judge of Israel. And here's some things that you need to know about him. Number one, he should never, ever touch anything dead. This is called a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament. He's to never touch anything dead. Second, he's to never have a sip of wine. He's not even supposed to eat a grape. He can't even have a raisin. This, those, they were off limits. And third, you know the third thing about Samson, at least some of you do. What could, what could hap, never happen to Samson's head? 
Never cut his hair. That's exactly right. Samson could never have a haircut. And so his parents tried to raise him up to, to live this holy, godly life and for him to be used by God to rescue God's people. But Samson flirted with disaster over and over and over. On one occasion, he actually, in his younger years, he actually told his parents he wanted to marry a Philistine girl. Now, the Philistines were the people who were oppressing God's people. They were the enemies of God's people. And he wants to marry the enemy. And his parents are saying, no, we can't do this. This is a horrible thing. And he presses them and he presses them. On another occasion, he sleeps with prostitutes. Uh, what is the man of God doing sleeping with a prostitute? I mean, there, there's, there are a lot of character flaws in Samson's life. But of course, the fatal flaw in Samson's life came with a woman named Delilah. Delilah was a temptress. She was this woman who the Bible says that Samson loved. And she was a, was a double agent in, in a lot of ways. Now, she may have had an affection for Samson, but she had a loyalty to the Philistines, to the enemies of God's people. And they came to her and they said, hey, if you will give Samson over into our hands, if you will find out what gives him this supernatural strength and find a way to, to, for us to strip him of that strength, then we'll pay you loads and loads of money. And while Delilah might have had some affection for him, she's a double agent and she agrees to betray Samson. And so she comes to Samson and she says, Samson, if you, if you loved me, you would tell me what gives you your great strength. And he says, if you ever bind my hands with a rope that hasn't been dried with, with a wet cords, then I become as weak as a little lamb. I can't do anything. So he goes to sleep. She wets a rope and puts it around his wrist. And she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And these guys rush in uh, to, because they think they've got him, right? And he snaps this rope and he uh, cracks their skulls and they go limping out of the room. And she says, Samson, you lied to me. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Delilah, what about you? But, but she goes, Samson, you lied to me. And you, you, if you really love me, you'd tell me. And he says, well, it's not actually wet ropes. It's just new ropes that have never been used before. And so if you do that, then I, I'm, I'm toast. So he goes to sleep again and she finds some new rope and she ties his hands up and she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he gets up and he snaps her rope and he cracks her skulls and they leave. And at this point, Delilah says to him, hey, you, you just keep lying to me. And he, why Samson can't figure this out, I don't understand. But Samson finally says, that, well, look, if you take the strands of my hair, which has never been cut, and you weave it in a weaver's loom, then uh, if, you, if my hair is woven together, then I will lose all of my strength. And Delilah, again, calls on the Philistines to come in, jump on, on uh, Samson, and he still snaps this weaver's loom, and, and he kills some of the Philistines and runs, uh, cracks some of the other skulls and runs them off. Now look, guys, let me explain something to you. If there's a girl in your life and she does stuff like that to you, please get away from that woman, okay? I mean, Samson should have figured this out, right? I mean, maybe Delilah's sweet, but she's psycho, all right? I mean, this is not going to work out well. But finally, Delilah says, 
And she's crying, according to the Bible. She's shedding these tears. She says, you don't understand. If you'd have told, you, you've never told the truth. And if you love me, you'd tell the truth about how, where your great strength comes from. And finally, after she wore him down, Delilah finds his secret. Look at chapter six, Judges chapter 16, verse 15. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times, and have, I not, told, and have not told me where your great strength is. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees and called for a man to shave off the seven locks of his hair. She began to afflict him, and his strength left him. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. Look at this last phrase. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. And they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains. And he was a grinder in the prison. Here's this man, Samson who had so much potential to be used by God. He had so much strength, so many character qualities that were, that were positive and God-honoring. And, and God was able to use him in an incredible way. But his character never caught up to his physical strength. And as a result of that, the Bible says that the Lord left him. The Lord had departed from him. And the result of the Lord departing from Samson was threefold. First of all, sin had a blinding effect on Samson. One of the parts of this text that's really kind of troubling if you read through it, the Bible says they gouged out his eyes. I mean, that's, that's kind of disturbing if you just sit and think about it long enough. But sin has that effect of blinding people. It blinds us to the truth. It blinds us to consequences. It tells us that there won't be any damage from our actions. Sin has a blinding effect, but sin also has a binding effect. Sin promises us freedom, and it never delivers freedom. It only delivers bondage. And sin has a grinding effect. The Bible says in this text that Solomon, or rather Samson, was a grinder in the prison. Here's what that means. That there was a mill in which they would take wheat, and under this huge stone... They would put a rod out from that stone and, and someone would push that stone in a circle. Typically, it was two oxen that would pull that stone around and around, crushing the wheat so that it made flour. But in this case, the Philistines used Samson. And night and day, he would push that rod to push that stone over and over and over. And he just went in circles. And sin has that kind of effect on people. You just begin to go in circles. You're going absolutely nowhere. Sin has an effect on you of grinding you down. 
One, uh, there was an old preacher who once said this about Samson's, uh, about Samson's place. And he said, sin will always take you farther than you wanted to stray. Sin will cost you more than you wanted to pay. Sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says, Do not be mocked that a man will reap what he sows. Whatever you sow is what you're going to reap. There are consequences for sin. And what sin wants, to, wants us to believe, what Satan wants us to believe is that you can, you can dabble in sin. You can have just a little bit of sin and it will, you'll never get caught and there'll never be a consequence and there'll never be a cost. And that is a lie. 2018, my family went on vacation and we went to California. We went to Yosemite National Park. I'd always wanted to go there because I think one of the most beautiful places in the world is Yosemite. And the part of the park that I wanted to see was Yosemite Falls. Yosemite Falls is, is a two-stage waterfall. The first stage is about 1,100 feet from the top of a peak down into a, into a pool. And then out of that pool, there's about another 700 foot drop. And if you stand back, it looks like one continuous waterfall. It is absolutely glorious. It is incredible. If you see it late in the day at the right time of year, there's this effect called the firefall where the sunset reflects through the water and it looks like lava is coming off the mountain. It is absolutely incredible. But at the top of that mountain, where the water goes over the falls, there is a big pool it's probably about three times the size of this room. It's like a pond. And there are signs all along that pool if you walk up to the top of Yosemite Falls. And those signs say, do not get in the water. It may look calm, but the currents are strong. Do not get in the water. And in 2018, only two months before my family went there, there was a youth group, a church youth group that hiked to the top of Yosemite Falls. And there was this young lady and she ignored the sign and she decided that she could at least wade in, you know, knee deep. It's not going, nothing's going to happen if I get in knee deep. The water's not rushing. The water's not moving that fast. At least that's the way it looks on the surface. And so she got in about knee deep. And what she didn't count on was the fact that the top of that mountain is sheer rock. It's just rock and it's slick when it's wet and she fell. And when she fell, the current caught her. Her boyfriend jumped in and tried to find her. And they both went over the upper falls to their death. Sin is like that. It looks tranquil on the surface. It looks like there's no way I'm going to get hurt. But I'm going to tell you, sin will always take you farther than you're willing to stray. It will keep you longer than you're willing to stay. And it will cost you so much more than you were willing to pay. Here's the first principle that I want you to realize, that without repentance, sin has an inevitable consequence. Now, there's a second point, though, that I want to make. And that is simply this. Because if I ended this sermon right here, that is bad news. All that is is bad news. And you're like, you know, Bob, I, I can figure some of that out. But here's the second part that I want you to see. God's grace is still available even after epic failures. 
Now, Samson has all this potential. God has put him on this earth to be the deliverer of Israel. God gave him this supernatural strength. God wanted to use him in an incredible way. But Samson's life is just this horrible, horrible failure. It is, as one of my friends put it in one of his sermons, a life well wasted. But even at that, at the end of his life, God's grace is still available to Samson. Look back at the text at verse 22. However... However, the hair of his head began to grow after it was shaved off. So Samson, the symbol of of his strength. I want to clarify something for some of you, like you grew up going to Sunday school, and you were taught that Samson's hair gave him his great strength. That's not true. The Lord gave him his great strength. His hair was a symbol of that great strength. So the Lord departs from him and his strength leaves, but the Bible says his hair starts to grow back. And all of a sudden, though he is blind physically, he's beginning to see some things a little bit more clearly. Look at verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice, for they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country, who has slain many of us. Now let me tell you what the Philistines did in this moment. They didn't make this about them and Samson anymore. They made this about their God, their false God, Dagon, and the one true living God of Israel. Now they've brought God into this. What they're saying is, our God is better than Israel's God. Our God is bigger than Israel's God. Our God is stronger than Israel's God. Now they've brought the wrong God into this. Because now it's not about Samson and about them. This is about the honor and the glory of God. Verse 25, it happened when they were in high spirits. They said, call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. And then Samson said to the little boy who was, holding out, who was holding his hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. About 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking while Samson was amusing them. They're taunting him. They're probably poking him with sticks. They're, 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 they're having this little child lead him in because he's blind now, and they think he's... All of his strength is gone, so a little child can lead him around. And I want to say this. When you see what's about to happen in this text, some people have objected to this, and they they push back on a little bit, and they go, boy, this this looks so cruel that God would do this. Like 3,000 people died. Let me explain something to you. They are worshiping a pagan god called Dagon. What we know about the worship of Dagon in the ancient world was that it involved rampant, raunchy, sexual immorality. It involved not only sexual immorality, but the worship of Dagon involved child sacrifice. They would take a living child and slaughter that child to their false god. These are not people. These are people having a pagan feast. They are not sitting around a campfire eating s'mores, okay? That is not what's happening here. These are not good, godly people. These are pagan people who hate the one true God. Look at verse 28. Then something happens. Samson called to the Lord. You know, 
There are about four chapters of Samson's life. This is the only place where it ever says he prayed. It's the only place he ever says he prayed. He finally gets something right. He says, oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, oh, God, that I may at once be advantaged to the Philistines for my two eyes. So Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, the one with his right hand, the other with his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed in his death were more than those that he had killed in his entire life. And here's what I want you to see in this passage. And I'm just going to make three statements of application. I'm going to wrap this up. Samson repented, but he never got his eyesight back. Here's the first thing I want you to know about Samson's life and about ours. God forgives sin, but sometimes he leaves the scars. Samson never got his eyes back. The scars remained, but God forgave his sin. And here's what I want you to know. If you flirted with sin, if you've waded in knee deep and you thought you'd never get caught and all of a sudden the current of sin swept you along, I want you to understand there's a God in heaven who, forgave sin, who forgives sins. There's a reason Jesus went to that cross. He went to that cross so that he could pay your sin debt, so that your sins could be washed away. His blood is the cure for our sin problem. And Jesus himself went to that cross for you. There is a God who forgives sin. But there are three application points that I want you to hear from Samson's life. One is this. Great opportunities do not guarantee great outcomes. Some of you have incredible talents. I know some of you. You're very talented people. God gave you wonderful abilities and talents and skills. Having great opportunities does not guarantee great outcomes. Secondly, great strengths cannot cover glaring weaknesses. Great strengths don't cover glaring weaknesses. Number three, grand failures do not have to be final. Your worst failure is not final. I'm going to tell you how I know that. Samson dies. He is buried. The record of what he did is written in Israel's history, in Hebrew scrolls, and in our Bible. But fast forward about 1,400 years. And a New Testament writer writes a book called Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 11... He lists a list of names and people who God had used and, and people that we, we call it the hall of faith. I mean, these are people who followed God by faith. And there are names in it you expect, like Moses is in there. David's name is in there. Samuel's name is in there. But I want to show you something. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And what shall we say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak. And look at the next one. Say it out loud. Who's there? Samson. He had an epic failure. But his failure was not final. And I want you to know this. Your failure doesn't have to be final either. There's a God who loves you. And I don't know what you've done or where you've been. Don't make this about somebody else. It's about you. This is what I know. 
that grace is still available even after an epic failure. God loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son down a cross so that you could be forgiven and set free. He wants to give you eternal life if you've never asked. I want to talk to two groups, two, two kinds of people. First of all, there are those of you in this room who've never trusted Christ. And you need to do that. You've come to this, you've come to the bridge. You may have come here night after night after night. You've heard the messages, you've heard the truth, and you've never trusted Christ. It's time for you to do that. Give your life to Christ. It is a decision you will never regret. Will it be hard? Yes. It will be. Because the world is against you. The enemy is against you. Yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. It will be. But it will be worth it. But I want to talk to a second group. And that is, some of you, you could go back to like, I was seven years old at vacation Bible school kind of experience. And it was real. I'm not making fun of that. I mean, it was real. But if you were honest with me right now, and you don't have to say it to me, but if you were honest, you'd say, there's been, a, there been some failures along the way between me receiving Jesus when I was 7 or 12 or 15 and where I'm sitting right now. I want you to know that that same grace that's available to people who don't know Christ to come to Christ is available to you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. That verse isn't just for people getting saved. That's for people who are saved, who really mess up, like me. Okay, let's pray together. Father, I pray for I pray for searching hearts right now that you've spoken into. Lord, some of us are really believing that our sin will never have a consequence, and there's never going to be that moment when there's going to be a price to pay, and yet. You're not mocked. We're going to reap what we sow. So Lord, help us to learn that lesson and to know it. I pray for those who've never trusted Christ, that in this moment, that they would trust Jesus, that they would believe with their heart that He died on that cross for our, all of our epic failures, for our spiritual failures, our disobedience, for our sin. I pray, Father, that in this moment they would trust that what Jesus did on the cross is the absolute full payment for everything we've ever done. And I pray that those hearts would begin to believe that He is alive today because of Your resurrection power. Lord, I pray also for Christians, for believers in this room, who've strayed and they've moved away from you, that tonight's a night to come back. The evil one has whispered, there's no way God will forgive you for what you've done.
And that's a lie. And we speak truth over that lie, that you are a forgiving, loving God, that your mercies are without end, and they are new every morning. It is a lie that we are unforgivable. And so, Father, I pray for Christians in this room who need a fresh move of your Spirit and a touch of your grace to know that they are forgiven and set free. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up together and worship.